both are Disney franchises, so we're not are that they really? far off. Yeah. Wow. I do not know anything about anything. So it was a live action film question mark? Uh yeah, it was live action combo for part of it animation. Oh, like um, like the special effects. Mary Poppins kinda. Exactly. Actually, uh we can talk a little about the history of the movie more in a hot minute, but it was uh picked up the rights to do or they were gonna planning on doing it before Mary Poppins, but then they did Mary Poppins, so then they waited a couple years to do bed knobs and broomsticks. But when they were like waiting on stuff, the guys who wrote the music wrote music for both of them. And so some of the music was like that they were writing for one was gonna go to the other and then yeah. Oh. So, yeah. That makes sense. I mean that happened a lot. They're very they're very similarly feeling movies and they almost cast uh Julie Andrews to be the lead in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, but she didn't want to be typecast, so she turned it down. So <laughs> oh. they cast Angela Lansbury. Also very good. God, I also love very Angela good. Lansbury. It's a good movie. Okay. I'll watch it after we do the Hi! <laughs> Welcome to Stone Houses, an amateur guide to fiction, fable, and folklore. I'm Caitlin Reuter. And I am Laura Bernadette Meeker. How's that for an intro? <laughs> Best cold open yet. <laughs> What are we talking about this week, Bernadette? We're talking about, I don't know why I did that, animated <laughs> armor, uh, or living armor, and because in some sources it's it's living, and mm-hmm. in some sources uh, it's animated by a spell, by a fancy yeah. wizard spell. Sometimes there's a ghost wearing it. It's a good time. Uh, so let's wait first. I feel like we should address something at the top of the episode, which we've neglected to address. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. Caitlin and I have, we do have bachelor's degrees in comics. Yes. Uh, and that is the extent of our higher education. Is that correct? <laughs> For me as well, yes. Yeah. So, uh, like with anything, we are absolutely always going to do our best to do corrections. Um, if we ever, we don't want to say that, oh, because we're amateurs, we have free reign to be insensitive or mean or bad, because that's garbage talk. We don't want that around here. We want to be nice people who say good things, yeah. but also we're idiots. <laughs> so uh, just wanted to put a big A on the amateur part of our title. <laughs> Uh, yes, our tagline is very important to the title of our show, and it's good, uh, good, good to emphasize every once in a while, which we haven't done in a while. So, the amateur guide to fiction, fable, and folklore—we are just having fun. That's this whole show. We're just having fun. So, I'm very sorry if we fooled anyone into thinking we actually knew a thing, studied this for a living. God, I wish we research these for. I know, I know. In right? another re- life, where I'm like the daughter of a count or something, or the son of a rich man, I would absolutely have become an eccentric who collected artifacts from around the world. Also, yeah. I would have a mansion built with trapdoors. Ooh, that sounds like a good plan. And can we like get can we get trapdoors in our in our apartment? That we're... Yes. <laughs> uh bookcase doors. Gosh. That would just very be very good, although 
a bookcase full of books is going to be crazy heavy, right? That's true, yeah. That's why they always show that, like, ah, I see by the scratch on the floor that it opened. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're talking about animated armor. But basically, basically all we wanted to say was to anyone who actually knows a thing, thanks for listening. And uh, I hope yeah. you... Yeah. <laughs> and if you know a thing that we don't know or that we say wrong, f- feel free to send it our way. Yeah. Because we like learning. We do, and that's that's the point. We are here to have fun, and we're here to learn. Enough of this disclaiming. <laughs> Living armor. Let's get into some real history. So if you play any kind of role-playing game or any number of video games, you've probably run into living armor at some point. Yes. It is a... I, I know I've used it in games. It's a great way to um, pull an unexpected non-living enemy out of, like, a pile of rubbish. Or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you turn that suit of armor laying against the edge of the storehouse into an enemy. Um, mm-hmm. they, we fought one in, in your, one of our, it was like a pile of coins right. and treasures and stuff. Kicked our butts. Yeah. God. He did hurt <laughs> you guys. Quite a bit, um, yes. <laughs> but they're really useful because it's the idea of, like, Oh, it's a it's a castle guard. Like um, in the uh, last Harry Potter film, I think they yeah, even have yeah, something Hallows. similar. The entries on I don't play Hearthstone or Magic. I'm sorry. I'm but one of the wikis explains that in almost always an automaton or a suit of animated armor is indistinguishable mythologically from like a golem. It's just yeah. in a very different form. And it has quite a few more opportunities for um, points of origin, like, say, a wizard did it, or there's a ghost living in there. Hey, we're two for two in a row here now where our topics have been loosely related to golems. (laughs) I think golems are really cool. They are. Maybe we'll do an episode about golems specifically at some point. Yeah, we really should. Also because I want to learn more about them. That's, that's really all this is. <laughs> Just give us an excuse to learn things and then spew them back out into the internet in a different right? format. I was telling Kaylin that this entire thing is a long con for me to trick people <laughs> into listing about my pet topics. <laughs> that's what we're here for. So I want to tell you about a historical mechanical knight, as in like a suit of armor that did not have a person in it, but could move. Ooh. Theoretically. Theoretically. It should be said that like, medieval or like moving suits of armor pretty uh old idea like they show up in i think in the arthurian cycle um in one Uh of the mort arthur stories there is a enemy who is a knight and then his head is removed and everyone loses their minds because there's no (laughs) one in there the dulahan uh, apparently, which we've talked about in the past as headless horsemen, uh, have alternately been interpreted as empty suits of armor being yeah. inhabited by goose. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I came across it during this research, and I was like, oh, my favorite, more, more info about the Dulahan. But I was, I was really intrigued by that because I had, I hadn't come across that before. So that was, that was a really cool uh, thing that, that I didn't know. Uh, I want to talk about Leonardo. Leonardo's Mechanical Knight. Yeah, yeah. You might know Leonardo da Vinci as kind of a big nerd who really yeah. liked coming up with stuff. I would like to say my brain tried to autofill DiCaprio as you were saying <laughs> Leonardo, Leonardo, and I was like, that's not, you know, you know, DiCaprio, our good, good uh, tinker man. Somehow I managed to n- manage by complete chance to never see him in a film before I saw Inception. So in my mind, he is always... <laughs> 
Well, I never saw Titanic. I never saw Romeo and Juliet. So in my mind, he'll always be kind of a crusty man married to a beautiful <laughs> French woman who I very much had a crush on. Uh, Good. So Leonardo da Vinci, I want to tell you a little bit about him because I have a book that is just a collection of his sketches and a bunch of stuff about his life. Gosh. Okay. So there's this thing where uh, one of my art teachers said in this very posh way, like, you can tell a real art historian because they'll never call him Da Vinci. They'll call him Leonardo. Da Vinci is just where he's from. (laughs) (laughs) That's Arbitrary shibboleth. If you ever want to seem fancy, call him Leonardo. Like he's your best friend. Our good, good friend, Leonardo. Our good buddy, Leonardo, who may or may not have uh, married an assassin in the olden time. No, I'm just talking about Assassin's Creed. Oh, okay. And Ezio, because we can play with him. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry about that. Uh, You're not. I'm not. He worked in Florence. (laughs) Uh, He ended up moving to Milan. He basically did a lot of work for the Borgias and um, in general was like made his living as a uh, commissioned artist artist for famous families in Italy. Um, He did an aggressive amount of work on just doing personal, personal portraits and, and studies and, all kinds of things that were of interest to a, a small amount of a small number of rich patrons. It, there's this idea when you talk about the Renaissance that it was in general a better, more enlightened time for a lot of people, but in reality, it was a time of revel- relative prosperity among a small mm-hmm. number of intellectuals and artists who were supported in part by nobility and um, people who were already in power. Uh, or who were, say, a uh, nouveau riche from industry <laughs> <Yes>. or something. <laughs> yeah. So the patrons. Leonardo was a hardworking guy. He also had, he also was like a huge nerd who had a bunch of individual passion projects that he always had going in the background. Sometimes they would be under the guise of being commissioned for something, but you really get the sense that he had a sense of, you really get the sense that he had a lust for scientific discovery and invention he was a master draftsman honestly compared to the like the paintings you see his draft stuff is a lot more interesting and livelier and shows his intellect as an artist but he really liked making machines you might be familiar with the um quote-unquote flying machine the uh the one i like to talk about is his um armored vehicle that he basically designed a (laughs) uh medieval tank and most of these never went into production like he might have had them going in his in his workshop you know like all artists of the times he had yeah yeah, like all artists of the time all successful artists of the time he had a workshop with um lackeys i guess i should say very few of these projects ever came to fruition there's a reason that people retroactively credit discoveries to Leonardo da Vinci because he would write (laughs) stuff down and then not publish it. Yeah. Was da Vinci the one who wrote stuff backwards and reverse in his sketchbooks? Yeah. It's awesome. He um, was left-handed, which I was not aware is apparently kind of like 
bad luck if you're Catholic? Question mark. I mean, I feel like it's associated. People just with hate sin. left-handed people. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people hate stuff that's different. But yep. he would write. Um, he would write left-handed in his journals and. Uh, an act which has since been interpreted by Dan Brown as an act of incredible conspiracy to conceal some <laughs> secret. I like the idea that all these historical people were involved in some, like, lifelong narrative or conspiracy when really they were probably just, like, getting by. Yeah. The only reason I know that he wrote backwards was because I had this series of, like, illustrated children's book about books about famous artists oh when, like when i was a kid like monet and da vinci and uh cassat and like all these my mom got them for us because my mom went to arts so my mom really into art our whole family's very into art music and stuff but uh so i had those growing up and that one i remember that illustration very vividly because i think i think it's like someone holding one of his notebooks up into like a mirror to read it or something like <laughs> and i i've always remembered that very vividly That's- give your kids books about great artists they'll remember weird facts well into adulthood i really like that i uh i gotta admit i never really liked leonardo da vinci as a kid like i found all of this is going to sound very mean i thought that a lot of his um more famous paintings were very boring but i think he probably would have been a really interesting dude to know and like yeah get to see his his sketches and writings because really did a lot of interesting stuff yeah there's this idea that art isn't fine art unless it is created independent of dependence for capital i literally had a teacher who said that like (laughs) high art can only be created independent from financial need so when i do fan art that's called high art (laughs) yes exactly literally all of these grandmasters were supported entirely by wealthy patrons yeah (laughs) I'm sorry what a hot that take that is. I'm sorry that the pool has become bigger as things become more accessible, so you don't get to be as elitist about things. But please chill. <laughs> All right, stuff off awesome. my soapbox. Back onto my soapbox to talk about how he made up uh, this design for a mechanical knight. Uh, yes. I realized that I took a really long ter- time to get to that, but uh, now it's good. He has this this sketch. So it was supposed to be. Um, it's purported to be a commission for a potential, an actual robot for use in battle. There's, it's one of those things where when you see his sketches of like the tank or the air thing, how much, uh, how much he actually had a sense of wanting to bring these things to life and how much of it was Mm -hmm. kind of like idle speculation or like, wouldn't it be cool? Yeah, yeah. If in 500 years someone discovered like a cosplayer's build of a laser, (laughs) laser gun and were like, aha, they invented laser guns. (laughs) I I don't know. They're, uh, again, Leonardo da Vinci is one of those people that people dedicate their entire academic lives to learning and Mm -hmm. talking about and digging through his underwear drawers and comparing things. <laughs> but I want to talk about um, Carlo Pedretti. He's the person who discovered the 1495 sketches for the Mechanical Knight. It was wearing, quote-unquote, German-Italian medieval armor uh, with a series of mm-hmm. mechanisms that allowed the robot to stand, sit, move his arms, neck, and lift the visor of the armor through a system of pulleys and cables. This is from the uh, ROSFilmFestival.com, uh, which is a very good 
good page if you want to read about this particular item. I believe there was a short film made on the topic, but it is not linked in any way to this article I'm looking at. So the big part of this is that people in 2005 in Berlin, uh, 2002, uh, Mark Rosheim, he's German, so question mark, reconstructed the mechanical knight by making a scale model uh, based on the da Vinci sketches and found that it worked perfectly well, which is pretty impressive. Notably does not have legs that are <laughs> controlled, does not move, but still um, pretty, pretty impressive to think about. Also, it gives me a complete irrational fear of it. Let me explain. Okay. Are you familiar with the Charlie Bone books? It sounds familiar, but I don't know if I know um, know them. It's a young adult, probably children's fantasy novel. I can't tell you much about the plot, but there are uh, small superpowers involved, and there is a animate small suit of armor that really scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, and that's why I'm actually, you know, kind of afraid of tiny suits of armor, which this one is a scale model, and it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. <laughs> my um, grandpa made this marionette knight, and it hung on our wall for years and years, oh. and I was haunted by the idea of what was underneath its helm. I feel like you've told me this before. It oh my God. scared the heck out of me. Amazing. It's still downstairs, and sometimes I just look at it, and I'm like, you're creepy. You're creepy we should post a picture like of that to the Stone Oh gosh, Twitter. I'll go take a photo of it. Okay. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci wasn't the only person thinking about making automatons. Automata were, you know, um, pretty popular uh pieces of entertainment there's the um you know what i'm talking about the mechanical monk basically a little yeah. guy that like burrs across the desk um <laughs> and also any number of things that were supposed to be completely clockwork but were in fact uh <laughs> connect uh controlled by people inside yeah. i want to talk about <laughs> the mechanical turk uh you might know him as the chess playing machine this he was toured around to all of these different places basically people would come to see it on stage or at private events um and play against him in chess and would often go against uh renowned chess players and it was a kind of uh big cabinet on top of which was a chessboard and across from which was seated a quote unquote mechanical turk I should point out, if you look this up, it is kind of racist. Oh, no. Because it is a a caricature of this Turk character. So he has, like, a turban and a furry coat and all of that. Um, so not super cool in that aspect. But neat from the aspect of there was actually a dude crumpled up into the box underneath oh, uh, operating this thing i mean through levers and pulleys but to give the illusion of a ai basically yeah yeah which a tangentially related i just think it's also incredibly creepy that guy must have been so uncomfortable in all the photos it looks imagine. like he's just a tiny man maybe the turk is just big oh maybe maybe he's i would die i'm like not intensely claustrophobic, but, like, enough to where that would probably send me. <laughs> but, uh, in short, he would, you know, crouch down, watch the board through a mirror, and actually play. Which is a pretty fun act of performance. But 
have very little to do with actual automatons. Automata, I think, come... Automata. No, wait. Uh, Come up a lot in all kinds of fantasy and sci-fi because, you know, living robots and living suit of armor, pretty tightly interwoven. Although I would argue that the majority of living armor in media is nonverbal. It doesn't tend to speak. It tends to move and attack. It doesn't... It, it the no way it's constructed, yeah, because it is a suit of armor, it doesn't emote, and for that reason, they tend to be a little more um, object-like than yeah. their robotic counterparts, or even golems. I think mm-hmm. are imbued with a little more um, uh, pathos because they have yeah. um, they have faces that are visible and often emotional in ways, or. Uh, in the case of some fantasy golems like the Gubu, like very endearing. Um, mm-hmm. By comparison, the suit of armor is a, <laughs> a implacable suit of armor. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about armor itself for a second. Yes. Armor, something not a lot of us seen see worn actually outside of like a Ren Fair, with the exception of body armor, which is of course. A kind of armor, Kevlar, is designed to stop bullets. Armor, heavy, good for for fighting when swords are involved. Less good for fighting when effective guns are involved. That, yeah. I just kind of wanted to bring this up because the Met Museum has an extensive collection of, um, of historical armor, which is fascinating and beautiful to look at, going from any number of um, extant pieces as well as illustrations and woodcuts. For two fascinating reasons I wanted to talk about this. One, they talk about how historians had a really hard time telling the difference between different types of mail because they didn't realize that uh, that these drawings were just artistic renditions of the same type of material. <laughs> like you draw- Fantastic. Like, imagine having to draw chainmail, all those tiny links. Of course there are going to be abstractions people yeah, draw from. Yeah. But it meant that people had all of these different historical theories about um, different types of chainmail that no longer existed for some magical reason. Two, one of their FAQs is, how did men in armor go to the toilet? (laughs) Relatable struggles. People who wear jumpsuits and people who wear armor. How do you go to the bathroom in public? The website makes a point of saying, when the person wearing armor was not engaged in warfare, he would simply do what people do today. He would make, make his way to a toilet in medieval renaissance, times usually referred to as a routine or garde-robe, or some secluded location remove relevant parts of his armor and clothes and heed nature's call. <laughs> but they do say, on the battlefield must have been a different matter. In the midst of battle, going to the toilet probably ranks among the least of one's worries, which is them saying they pooped. And their armor. <laughs> Although, oh my god, I love the relevant pieces of armor. That cool. Yeah, you know they, they the remove the relevant, pieces. the relevant ones. Wink. You know oh which ones god. I'm talking about. Oh I just man. enjoy their uh, their kind of chatting. Like, yes, they probably put their armor. Please don't ask about it. Okay. <laughs> Please stop bringing it up, okay? It's probably the same thing that astronauts get where they're like, we don't want to talk about going to the bathroom. Don't make us talk about it. Stop bringing it up. Oh my god. 
All right. Enough about that. You may know that uh, for the most part, um, smithed armor as we think of it in big fancy metal things that protected yourself from swords. Uh, that was the worst description of armor that's ever been. <laughs> Nailed it. Got it in one. Thank you. Kind of fell out of use after um, after guns became usable in a way mm. that was more than like it takes one whole minute to reload your musket really? kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and things became more invested in impact dispersion. Uh, stuff like that, like preventing bullets from penetrating the body. Because <laughs> that's important. <laughs> but it does mean that we don't see like cool suits of armor now. And therefore, and therefore living armor tends to be a fantasy exclusive or like haunted yeah. house exclusive creature. Yeah. This is another topic where like in where I can absolutely i can totally see where this sort of story comes from like it's so easy to draw the connection from point a to point b because like all these like pieces of armor like when they're stiff and stuff and they're stored as a full set like or decorating a castle just like in human form like there's not a hard like it's not hard to draw the conclusion hey in the middle of the night this kind of gets up and walks around like (laughs) It's really, really cool. So, like, all of the, like, the hard, rigid parts are, like, you don't quite see as much, like, oh, it's just the scale mail, or, like, it's just the, cha- usually it's the, the plate mail and the, and the bigger, like, rigid pieces yeah. of, of stuff. Or, I like, think it's or, like, probably harder to, style. it's probably harder to imagine how everything would move <laughs> if you can actually see the contours of the body, because then you're thinking, yeah. there's a ghost in there, there's flesh there's in there, in what's there. happening? I need to know about it. <laughs> It's worth saying that this is one of those topics that is so universal, like the idea of animated armor, the inherent creepiness of here is a suit of clothes with no person in it, (laughs) shows up in so many things that it doesn't really have a definite point of origin. Um, Perhaps someone who was a historian in armor? No, that's the wrong idea, but have a better idea. But it's something that shows up a lot, but not often as the focal point of a Mm. story because, of course, they don't really have a lot of personality. Mm. That's one of the uh, kind of defining features of animated armor is that usually it is controlled by someone to a specific purpose yeah, via a spell, via some other um, primal need, like as defenders. Say, yeah, protection or like a yeah. deterrent or something to that. Yeah. Yeah. Here is my uh, army of terracotta soldiers. I know that's not the same thing, but they are going to protect me with their incredible weapons and their cool mm. faces. I don't know. I just really <laughs> like those sculptures. It's amazing that they exist. They're really cool. They don't really show up as the protagonists a lot. If someone is involved with it, it kind of has to be. Um, focus on another person in the sense of um, a work that I want you to go check out because we almost definitely cannot air it. I'm just going to read uh, part of the introduction. (laughs) The Fall of the City, a radio play which was performed or uh, produced by Orson Welles in the heyday of radio, which is largely metaphorical. In terms of how it has to do with living armor and um, and the invention of enemies and idols and, and 
There's a lot that has to do with <laughs> the people actively creating their own enemy. Yeah. Uh, in an attempt to uh, to make sense of a chaotic world. And a not a not good result, let me tell you. So I'm just going to read you um, the introduction, which opens stage direction says, Voice of the studio director, orotund and professional. Ladies and gentlemen, this broadcast comes to you from the city. Listeners over the curving air have heard from furthest off frontiers of foreign hours, mountain time, ocean time, of the islands, of waters after the islands, some of them waking, where noon here is the night there, some where noon is the first few stars they see, or the last one. For three days, the world has watched this city, not for the common occasions of brutal crime, or the usual violence of one sort or another, or coronations of kings or popular festivals. No, for stranger and disturbing reasons, the resurrection from death and the tomb of a dead woman. Each day for three days there has come to the door of her tomb at noon a woman buried. The terror that stands at the shoulder of our time touches the cheek with this. The flesh winces. There have been other omens in other cities, but never of this sort and never so credible. In a time like ours, seemings and portents signify. Ours is a generation when dogs howl, and the skin crawls on the skull with its beasts foreboding. All men now alive with us have feared. We have smelled the wind in the street that changes the weather. We have seen the familiar room grow unfamiliar. The order of the numbers alter the expectation cheat the expectant eye the appearance defaults with us here in this city the wall of time cracks we take you now to the great square of this city one of the reasons i wanted to bring this up is not only the fact that the ultimate antagonist of the story is a imaginary conqueror who's essentially an empty suit of armor literally an empty suit of armor can Uh, i read the 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 discovery that it's empty oh please do so it's basically all they in the end they all surrender to this conqueror and like all the people have like heads to the ground I guess in submission and the narrator sees that this is the quote there's no one there's no one at all no one the helmet is hollow the metal is empty the armor is empty I tell you there's no one at all there there's only metal the barrel of the metal the bundle of armor it's empty (laughs) I think that's very dramatic and very cool (laughs) it's extremely good one of the things I like about the intro to it, though, is the idea that the kind of anxiety of change, the idea that we are the generation that is seeing a change and something terrible is happening happening, and people are losing some essential value or changing in some way. Uh, we're saying that literally every generation thinks that about everything. <laughs> um, but it's that kind of, like, powerful, um, almost... In some places, sensational anxiety that can yeah. lead to the genuine downfall of a civilization. I mean, look at Rome, who got so into their imperialism that they conscripted um, they conscripted people who weren't loyal to the empire, but then also refused to in, in any way incorporate them <laughs> or make them feel <laughs> welcome. Uh, weird that having so many... Um, purported citizens feel actively hostile towards that would in any way uh damage your ability to run an effective empire wink (laughs) uh it's an extremely good radio play and you really should seek it out it's available on youtube it's called the fall of the city 
Do you have a good Orson Welles impression? I, there's no way. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, if I had, I would have broken it out for that last. <laughs> Famously. For that last quote I read. Maurice LaMarche is a great fan of Orson Welles and doing Orson Welles impersonations. Uh, and there is like an extended scene in Pinky and the Brain, which is just him doing an imitation of an Orson Welles sketch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to have such a niche and specific interest always makes me really like someone. Phenomenal. We'll work on it. That'll be our homework. All right. We'll work on an Orson Welles impression. <laughs> so that's what I've got historically on these these fellas, these these mailed and and upright folks. Metallic folks. Yeah, man. What you got? So pretty much everything I have is in relation to. <laughs> media tropes and pop culture and bed knobs and broomsticks the 1971 disney film which i'll talk about in a second basically a lot i feel like a lot of what people have exposure to or what they see is in like we mentioned earlier it's in a ton of video games it's in a ton of of like if there's a castle like in a film or something, even if it's not something that's particularly paranormal in any fashion, there's I feel like there's sometimes you'll even see like a gag about, oh, I bet like the there's the nervousness that, oh, this this suit of armor could come to life, even if it doesn't. And then when it does, you're like, oh, you're expecting it because I feel like we we see it so much. And the the uh, the thing that Bernadette suggested this topic because they were watching Scooby Doo. Um, what a night for a night. <laughs> yep. So it shows up a lot, especially in like mystery things or like, or just, just, it just shows up a ton of media and like Castlevania, whatever. I'll list all of these, all these video games. Let's that be honest, up in, but it's, it's a great way to make an enemy that doesn't actually need a motivation or personality or yeah. like physical body behind it. And you don't have to kill something. So it's great for like, like kids media. Like you're not gonna, you're not killing a person. You're just knocking over a, a bunch of metal armor pieces. Like... It's not so gruesome. Like, <laughs> if you have to defeat that as an enemy, it's not so bad. But yeah, it it just it's it's so prevalent. Like, if you look up, there's like the the tropes, the TV tropes, whatever on it. It's it's huge. There's so much. I, I my pop culture section is so long. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, it also just in in a sort of an adjacent pattern in in sci-fi. It kind of shows up too. You could probably even consider like something with like a an unmanned mode or like an auto pilot mode of some sort of robot or it reminds me a lot of um in fallout there are a lot of different kinds of yeah. um the one it made me think of was the uh, automatons you can like activate uh the protract protectrons uh mm-hmm. are extremely similar in that they have no imagination but are <laughs> extremely ready to kill things yeah, even like um if you think like Iron Man, like some of the some of the prototype suits can fly <gasps> unmanned or fly by Jarvis, that could be considered like I a, a, quote unquote animated Kaylin. armor. Kaylin, what? have you read the arc where where Tony's suits get an, suit gets animated and gets jealous and traps him on an island? No. Uh oh gosh, <laughs> what is the name of this arc? I believe it is part of the Ultron story, at least indirectly, oh. <laughs> um, wherein it becomes sentient and 
grows a huge obsession with Tony and imprisons him <laughs> on an island um, <laughs> in a, dare I say, romantic <laughs> uh, way. The point is, it's like, it's a lot. And I mostly remember it because it was drawn with exceptional passion. <laughs> and I remember thinking, it's amazing that someone someone put this out into the world. Good for them. <laughs> that's awesome. I actually haven't heard of that, but that's phenomenal. But I think that counts. That counts as animated armor. If you it's awesome. Uh here's a great uh a great <laughs> sentence. I mean, not great, but Kind of a Frankenstein story, if you will, where he starts to resent Tony for having created him. Yeah. The armor forced Tony inside itself and flew to a deserted island. <laughs> I mean, does, does a lot, dare I say. Oh my god. All oh right. God. I'm sorry. I just no, needed to talk about it. If you, um, apparently he is in... In the main Iron Man uh, thing from 26 to 30. Uh, Iron Man Volume 3 issues 26 to 30. That's from March of 2000 to July of 2000. So if you would like to go and seek out that, it might, in retrospect, not have been as um, charged as I remember it being. But let me say it was weird. Read it and send us a review. Please do. All right. Oh my god. That's related, that's awesome. right? Sentient it armor. Is, it it's literally well, called Iron Man parentheses sentient armor close parentheses. Yeah, no, it's good. That's perfect. Ha-ha. That's exactly what it is. But yeah, so again, sci-fi has those sort of things like unyagered or unpiloted whatever like robot-esque type things. So I think that's a pretty cool little bit adjacent, oh not god. quite exactly. Is that what new venom is? Like an organic version of that? Oh my god. Oh my gosh. Maybe? Would it be would it be considered more of a golem? Oh gosh. Well, we should later talk about this in our newly oh, suggested no. segment. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Okay. I'm sorry. Carry on. Uh so <laughs> Hi everybody. My name is Caitlin Bruder. Welcome to my Bedknobs and Broomsticks fan cast. Sub fan cast. I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk a lot about Bedknobs and Broomsticks because I watched this movie so many times as a child. I did not realize how many times I watched this movie until I was watching it again for this episode. And I was like, oh my God. Like, I have, I have every line in this movie memorized. <laughs> like, every. <laughs> I haven't seen it in probably a decade. Like, I don't. And I still really liked it. I still really like it a lot. It's a musical, like a lot of um, a lot of Disney movies are. Uh, but it's so it's live action comboed with animation in the style of like like um, Mary Poppins or or like Who from Red Drive. Not for the whole thing, but just for like a segment, very similar to Mary Poppins. So I'm gonna do a rundown of the plot because. It's fresh in my head, and I just, I really like it. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's just, a, it's just a good, silly movie. And some of the premise is a little bit goofy now that I'm an adult, but like, <laughs> haste, like most media. So 1971 was when it was made. So it takes place in the 1940s during the war. So it starts out with these, these kids who are in um, this small town. You find out that these kids were, have been evacuated from London, 
and they're out in the countryside to get away from the bombings. And so these kids are going to different homes in this small town to be safe. And this this uh, these three kids are the only ones who are left. And uh, this woman, who is Miss Price, uh, Eglantine Price, comes riding in on this little, like, <laughs> like putt-putt-putt-putt motorbike. And the smoke coming out of it is this, like, thick yellow cloud, like... <laughs> And she comes to the post office and, and uh, picks up a package. And the postmistress is the woman who is, like, helping these kids and is like, okay, you have to come with me. There's something else. And she's like, oh, okay. And she's like, okay, you have to take these kids in. And she's like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, sorry, by order of this, or- like, there's this ordinance. You, you have to because you have, you live by yourself and you uh, you have extra beds. You have room to spare. You have to, you have to take these kids in. And she's like, well... Guess if I have to, but I would like you to start looking for someone else to take them in. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So she get, fits these three kids in this tiny sidecar of this motorbike with this package that she got that's very, very long. And it's pre- it's a broom. It's yeah. pretty easy to see that it's a broomstick. She takes them home, whatever. They're very upset that she makes them wash before dinner. They just aren't having it. <sighs> They're very upset about that. And she has a very scrappy-looking, full-of-attitude cat. Named Cosmic Creepers. Oh. Uh, whom I love, who's probably my favorite character. Uh, <laughs> has no lines, but you can see the emotion in his eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it a real cat? It's a real cat, yeah. So it's a very cute cat, too. Just very mangy, almost scrappy looking. Um, but you find out that this, this woman, Eglantine Price, is a student of Dr. Emilius Brown and his school of witchcraft. And uh, she's been getting packages from him. And these lessons and whatever. And so when the kids go to bed, she, like, runs out to her little shack and she opens this broom. And so she has to, like, figure out how to ride it. And the cat's giving her attitude. And so she goes for a spin on this on this broom as the kids are, like, they're going to sneak out and go back to London. And they see her crash. Oh, no. And they're, like, and they're like instead of, you know, going to help her or check on her, they're, like, hmm, this is good blackmail material. And... <laughs> <laughs> they so in the, the next morning at breakfast they decide to stay and they tell her like lovely weather for flying last night and she's like excuse me <laughs> so they strike a bargain that if she gives them something valuable they won't tell so she what is cast, with these children yeah i know it's mostly though it's mostly one but whatever they learn from her that she's been waiting on this final lesson because she's trying to help the war effort. She's a witch who has all of these and a patriot. Yeah, she's she, so she's trying to fight against the Nazis and that's her that's her deal as a witch. And so she's been waiting for this final lesson that's that's called substitutionary locomotion and you don't find out what that is yet. But she gets a letter in the mail saying that the final lesson isn't coming because mm-hmm. of the war. It's not because they, they're closing the <gasps> school. And she's so upset. No. She's so upset. So she asks the kids. So the, the, the valuable thing that she had given them was she cast um, this traveling spell on this bed knob. And it was for the youngest boy. And if they used it on the bed and used it correctly, they could. it would take them wherever. And she asks for their help. Uh, she needed to go to London to go find Dr. Amelius Brown because she needed that last spell. So they have a good song about how about the age of not believing and the oldest boy doesn't think it's real and whatever. And it's about growing up and he ends up getting afraid, becoming afraid of the cat and jumps on the, <laughs> jumps on the bed and goes with, with them. 
and they have to like they put the bed knob on, tap it three times, and turn it a quarter of the turn to the left or whatever, and say where they want to go. And it's this really I think the the traveling sequence is really cool. I think it's really just like delightful, very colorful and 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 magical and sparkly. I'm sure you could find something about it on YouTube, but. Um, they go to London and they find out that this Dr. Emilius Brown is a fraud. <gasps> he is a charlatan. He is a street performer with who just like sleight of hand tricks. That's Wait, what he does. So she's just like getting real magic out of these things. Yes. <gasps> yes. It's I love this. I think it's great. So she is just so just livid basically like what like what do you mean the whatever he doesn't believe her that she can do magic so she turns him into a rabbit and the ongoing joke is that she's trying to turn people into toads but can only turn them into rabbits Uh, so he believes her and he's like what like oh my god and so he tries he comes up with this plan he's like i imagine how great i would be as a stage magician if i had an assistant who could actually do magic and oh this tool yeah so she's like what she's like no i just need I just need the last spell. Like, I just need the final lesson. I'm trying to stop a war here, sir, please. And so he takes them back to this mansion that he's living in that is not his. <laughs> but it has the whole block has been evacuated because a bomb landed in the front yard but hasn't gone off. So Wait, he's is sleeping he squatting? There. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What a loop. And he's like, it's the fanciest I've ever lived, whatever. And so he does, so whatever, they go... And they're they have dinner, and he's she's like, please just give me the book, please give me the book this that you were getting stuff out of, and so he's like, okay, okay, okay. So they go to the library, and he sings this whole song about why she should work with him, uh, and she turns him into a rabbit again, <laughs> and <laughs> she's like, okay, give me the book, please, and so he finds it, but the back page, the back like section is ripped off. And she's just distraught. And he's like, that's why I couldn't do the final lesson, because I don't have it. And she's like, Where, we need the other half of this book. Where is it? So he's like, well, I lost it in a scuffle with this old dude at this, like, street vendors, this bazaar, basically. And she's like, well, we have to let's go back. And so they go to Portobello Road, which is probably my favorite sequence of, like, I don't know. I have such vivid memories of it, and it's so cool. It's this huge bazaar, and they sing a song called Portobello Road, and they have this whole dance sequence of, like, from all over different dance styles and different people in different costumes and this whole... It's really, really sweet. Well, while Angela Lansbury is just desperately trying to find this book oh, no. as people are dancing around her, and, like, she gets into it and dances in the end, and it's cute, but... That's basically how Murder, She Wrote happens, right? <laughs> Exactly. I so I I just wanted to say that I was trying to find clips of this so I could seem like I knew something, and I have c- happened across a uh, animation of a a lion and a warthog playing basketball, but with what looks like just an orange volleyball. I will. Yes, I <laughs> I will get there. Okay, <laughs> we are we are very close. So. They, while they're in this, like, whatever, the youngest kid finds a book about the Isle of Nabumbu, and it's a kid's book. And Angela Lansbury is desperately looking for the end, the last piece of this tome. And they're spotted by this, like, seedy-looking guy with, like, pencil mustache and a hat. Like, (laughs) and by the end, when the market closes, he, like, corners them and says, like, this guy needs to talk to you. And it's the dude who has the other half (gasps) of the book. And they... 
they're like, well, we can't leave this bed, whatever. So they push this bed into this building, into the basement where they lock them in to talk to this guy. And so they know these two guys know that Emilius Brown is a charlatan and a fraud, but they're like, so you're locked in here. And so they finally look at the back of this book and they each think that the other has the spell and they don't. Because the end just says that it's the uh, spell of substitutionary locomotion. It, the words are engraved on the star of Astaroth, which was the this this medallion worn by a king who was or this wizard who was uh, who enchanted animals and gave them life. And eventually they overthrew him, and then there's an island where they live uh, now that they rule. But the guy's like, it doesn't exist. I've looked. I've looked. And he's like, it's called the Isle of Nabumbu. And this little kid goes, yeah, it exists. <laughs> he's got this children's book about the Isle of Nabumbu. So they, they're like, all right, I guess we're leaving. And they're like, how are you going to leave? You're trapped in the basement, and they get on the bed, and Amelius Brown gives this whole, like, performative speech while it gives them time to, like, do the spell and get out. And they're like, how will you get out? Blah, blah, blah. And then they disappear, and they go to the Isle of Nabumbu, which is this animated island. It feels very oh much, the God. way that it's animated reminds me a lot of Robin Hood, the Robin Hood yes. um, movie, I, like, I the style. I was thinking that the, uh, the lion in the hat had a similar jaw going on. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. The lion and the the um, the bear have very, very similar character models to those in in the Robin Hood book. So they get to this island. They go meet with the king, and it turns out the king really wants to play soccer. <laughs> and the king is this lion. They're not even playing either basketball or volleyball. No, it's soccer. <laughs> it's okay. So they're very upset that. That they don't have a referee. And so Amelia Brown's like, well, I'll be a referee. I used to play soccer. <laughs> and so that's the whole arc of this is they and everyone keeps winking at each other. Like <laughs> what entails being a, a referee is getting just absolutely <laughs> beat into the ground by the <laughs> by this soccer game that has no rules except what the king says. And so the king is wearing the Star of Astaroth. And so at the end, he thanks him for helping out. It's basically a montage of him just getting run over a hundred times by the stampede of animals, animated animals playing football. And it's kind of funny. But uh, at the end, he's like, he does he does a switch for this king. He And the king ends up with the referee's whistle around his neck. And Emilius has this pendant. And so they like run and leave and get on the bed and escape and go back home. And they're like... They see on this star that the words engraved on it are Traguna Macoides Tricorum Satisti. And uh, they're like, nice. So they get back and they're like, all right, let's try it out. So they put the pair of shoes in the ground and he opens up his handkerchief and this this pendant has fizzled out of existence because it doesn't belong in this world. Therefore, it doesn't exist. And Angela Lansbury is so distressed and she's like, I should have known. I should have known. Whatever, whatever. And she's like, if only I had the sense to write down the words. And she's like, she's like trying to remember. And the little kid's like, I know what they are. And they're like, shut up, let her think. <laughs> and he's like, up, <laughs> he's like, no, I know. And they're like, let's, she's upset, let her work. And so these kids leave. And this little kid's like huffing about it. And then like he tries again. And they're like, stop bothering her. <laughs> and like later at dinner, he's like, whatever they're sitting in, he's like, maybe they were words like, Traguna, Macoides, Tracorum, Satisti, and Angela Lansbury's like, Paul, how do you know that? And he's like, it's in my book. 
<laughs> so this children's book he had has the has the Star of Astaroth with the spell written on it. They had it the oh, whole time, no. and I think it's very funny. So they do this spell, and it it works. They're these they get, but they get like she does this whole dance, and they do this whole Traguna, Macoides, Tracorum, Satisti, and this is like substitutionary locomotion. Da 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 da. It's very it's it's a very fun song that I still remember it a lot of. It's 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 cute, and then it kind of gets out of hand, and like her nightgown is dancing, and there's a sword in the room, <laughs> and like there's boots, and one of the kids' pants takes over, and it's this whole montage. And they're like, it doesn't work. And so that night, whatever, they get it to stop. And then that night, the uh, Emilius Brown decides he needs to leave because he's fallen in love with Angela Lansbury. Oh, no. And he feels terrible about it, whatever. What, and so, why does he feel they, terrible about it? Because because she, the kids, because this post-mistress woman who is in charge of the kids comes and tells her, good news, we found a new home for the kids. And she's like, oh, no, but I like them now. <laughs> and the kids are like, the kids are like, no, we, we, it's okay now. We, Amelius Brown's going to be our dad. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> and he's like, this is a bad, like, I, I didn't plan for this to happen, whatever. So he feels uncomfortable and leaves. So he I goes mean, to the train station. <laughs> yeah, it goes to the train station, whatever, that night. That night, the Nazis invade the beach right next to her house. Wow. And so they take over her house as, like, a headquarters, and they're, like, she tries to turn one into a rabbit, but the whole, like, this gag through the whole movie, she has <laughs> terrible memory and can't remember her spells, so she needs her notebook to cast spells, <laughs> but she doesn't have it. So they take them to this museum. That's, like, dead. Like, get rid of them. So they lock them in this museum, and they're all just, like, so sad that whatever, they can't do anything to help. They don't even have the spell, like... She can't even do it. They don't even have things to cast the spell on. And so Amelius Brown hears, like, sees the invading parties, runs back to their house, and then gets chased by these uh, these soldiers and then locks himself in a room and mad- manages to turn himself into a rabbit. Amazing. <laughs> to escape. And so he runs to this museum where they're at, jumps in, and, turn- and turns back into himself. And they're like, what do we do? We can't do anything. And they're like... She's like, I, I, the spell isn't ready. It's too unpredictable. We don't even have weapons. And they're like, well, look around. This entire exhibit is full of armor. <laughs> and it's the entire, yeah, it's just full of armor from different, like, areas and whatever. And they decide to do, it's their last chance to break out and do this, this substitutionary locomotion to ward off these invading Nazis and they they do the whole thing, they do the whole whatever, and they get this gigantic army. So there's this scene with all of these these empty husks of armors coming up. So this long hill that goes as far as you can see, like the entire shot, and it's just lined with with these soldiers and these <laughs> this living armor, and above them is is <laughs> Angela Lansbury on a broom. <laughs> Yes! Flying above them with a sword. And she's, uh, yeah, she's like, forward! And this gigantic, so she wards off. give Angela Lansbury a sword. (laughs) Yeah, give her a sword and an entire army. So she single-handedly fends off this invasion with this... With these, and it's a great montage of these these German soldiers being like flabbergasted by like that, that's a witch. There's no such thing as witches, and but it, <laughs> and they like 
these soldiers come up and they're like firing at them and whatever. And there's these good moments where like one of the where they're close enough to see this one like picks up its helmet and dumps out like 30 bullets and puts his head back on. Oh, that's um, very good. It's so good. And then there's one where it like it like it's like kind of like shuffling really awkwardly and it stops and like pulls off its leg from the knee down pours out like 30 bullets and then whacks the guy in the head with it oh and that's very good there's some like horse horseback riders is very very good um and then there's this they're like chanting like this like very like gregorian sounding like all of these they're they speak in this and it's just traguna macoides tracorum like over and over again with this like very good it's so it's like really cool and it's i I would imagine extremely creepy if you were uh, on the receiving end of that but they ward off this whole invasion as like the town guard comes in and it's a it's like ten like eighty year olds come like running in and they're like we offended them off da, 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 da. but not before a bomb goes off in Angela Lansbury's bomb. house. Oh right. <laughs> yeah. So they had set something off and it blew up her workshop and she lost all of her spells and she was above it when it happened so she falls to the ground again on her broom and uh, all of there's this cool scene where like. All of these, they start, all these these living armors start to, like, essentially deflate and slowly fall to the ground and, like, very, like, uh, like unsettling in a way. But now the whole countryside is littered with this armor <laughs> that wow. are riddled with bullet holes. <laughs> and, That's uh, fine. Yeah, so she has whatever, the, she's fine. She gets up, she just lost concentration on her spell, and the kids find her, and they're like, we did she it. Yeah, we're her. safe. We're safe Girl. from the Nazis, and but she lost all of her spells, <gasps> and so she, yeah. So they have this moment like, it's okay. I don't need to be a witch. I, at least I did something good while I had it. Um, and so the kids end up. So end of the story. The kids end up moving in with her and like living with her. And then Emilius joins the war after he become, <laughs> becomes a soldier. And no, uh, he's too old. <laughs> he does not look suited to be a soldier. Yeah, is he? Who, he is he also Mr. Banks? He is also Mr. Banks. Yeah, that's who he is. So that's if you want a visual. It's uh very good. But basically, I talked about that for a very long time. I'll probably cut a lot of that out. <laughs> no, but, you have to keep all of it in. It's long. <laughs> but basically, like I mentioned in the beginning, the Sherman brothers are the people who wrote the music for both of them, and there's overlaps, but but um they also wrote supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. They're very good at making up words, which is Traguna McQuaidis Tricorum Sadisti are engraved in the Star of Astaroth, and a lot of people kind of have been noodling at this, at these, this series of words, which mm-hmm. are like fake Latin kind of a thing. Right. But I did find an email chain that was basically a back and forth, <laughs> trying to d- figure out what this, and this was, this was the theory. Traguna is a, like, basically some sort of changed to, to become or make rough. Okay. McCoides was maybe an approximation of, like, the bleeding goats. Mm. Tracorum was maybe a generalization. The the teams teams of three horses. Satis is just Latin and it, like sufficient, like thinks satisfaction. Like it just means sufficient. And then D, they didn't know. Someone like thought maybe it was in reference to a person who worked on the film. It was their last name. I don't know. But supposedly putting it all together and adding uh, poetic licenses, it potentially could be translated to. The rough making of the teams of three horses by the bleeding goats is sufficient to leave you in the lurch. Mm. That is some good content. Yeah, so 
I don't know the actual whatever the validity of that, but that sounded cool. Um, but Traguna McQuaidy's Tricorum Sagesty. Who knew? <laughs> that makes me very happy. I'll have to watch this. It seems like something I would like. I really like the music in the movie a lot. It's very good. Any I- film where the main point is fighting Nazis is good in my <laughs> book. It's very good. But yeah, so that's what I have. The whole, it's basically the last, if you want to just see The Living Armor, it's the last 15 minutes of the film. This film is two hours long, <laughs> maybe a little bit longer than that. It's a very long movie, hey, but I love every I minute love of it. I love looking at Angela Lansbury. Yeah, I did. I, so I have the DVD. I didn't have to buy this. <laughs> and I was watching it, and this DVD is probably 18 years old because there were... <laughs> Maybe 19 years old, and it was scratched to, like, pieces. I was like, I didn't think it was going to play, but it did. It went all the way through just to show how much it was loved. It has been used <laughs> countless times. But it was the – there were there were commercials in it, previews, for films coming out in 2001. Oh, wow. That's some Yeah, so that was quality. fun. I just have D&D Corner and Pop Culture left. Uh, uh, as a creature in D&D, uh, it's a <laughs> challenge rating one. <laughs> on Roll20, it's an animated armor. It has anti-magic susceptibility, uh, and it has, like, a false appearance, kind of like the gargoyle. So while it's motionless, it's essentially, it looks exactly the same as a normal suit of armor. They're very dumb, with a negative five to intelligence and a negative wow. four to wisdom. I mean, <laughs> it means it's very good. Um, I also found it as a playable race, which was kind of cool. Uh, on D&D Beyond, it's uh, listed as a construct, like living armor. It's described as cheating death. Oh. So because of it has an experience with death, death, the living armor gains advantage on death saving throws, which is cool. Um, and like Tieflings have Hellish Rebuke, Animated Armor has Arcane Rebuke, which is the same thing, just kind of reskinned. Mm-hmm. Um, and its sub-races on D&D Beyond are Juggernaut, Spell Touched, and Undying Faith. So that's pretty cool. Uh, there was another one on D&D Wiki, so D-A-N-D-D Wiki, uh, as animated armor. And they are essentially ghosts in armor or, like, enchanted or animated armor. Uh, there's a thing, they have a, a feature called soul transfer where you can transfer your consciousness into another suit of oh, armor over like, the course um, of a short or long rest. Never mind. I was going to say, what is uh, Warforged is tangentially related yeah. to that, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I yeah, lightly. I re- really yeah, only know about similar. that because of dice camera action. Yeah, I think I think Warforged are clockwork, maybe? Yes. They're more of an automaton. I think these are just straight up suits of armor. Oh, armor. Still pretty cool but, though. Yeah, in the D D uh playable race, the sub races are light, medium, and heavy armor, which is kind of oh. cool and makes a lot of sense. I wanna I like be that. a leather golem. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah. That's gross. Oh <laughs> but yeah, uh, D that's D D corner. Uh, Dungeon Mesh I wanted to talk about really quickly because it has a pretty different take on living armor. This is uh, spoilers if you haven't read Dungeon Meshi or Delicious in Dungeon. I don't know why they don't didn't localize it to Dungeon Delicacies, but that's <laughs> not my job. So Delicious in Dungeon is the English title, but uh, it has a really different take on Living Armor. The characters start out, again, big spoiler warning. I know that this doesn't matter to most people, but I really love this comic. I think it's really uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the characters start out assuming that the uh, living armor is enchanted by a spell. Um, mm-hmm. Keep in mind that the driving question for one of the main characters of this story is, can I eat it? Question <laughs> mark. 
Oh, um, amazing. And the argument that the other characters make is, no, you definitely can't eat living armor. <laughs> like, y- you can't. It's just metal. Um, but within the realm of this story, um, mimics and living armor and um, mimic coins all have kind of a biological relation in that they are... Mm-hmm organisms that create these kind of shells so to speak so the living armor in this case is a almost like a mollusk that uh is Mm. locomoted by thin sheets of mem uh of tissue in between the layers of armor so like it's not actually um solid like a sheet of metal it's the shell (laughs) on either side with the um, the creature inside acting as tendon, um, with the assumption being that it's a colony of creatures rather than, say, a um, a sentient entity, which operates on a biological impetus to, like, protect their young and to feed and stuff. I don't know. It's just a really great take. That's and really cool. Also, the answer is, yes, you can eat it. <laughs> but you don't eat Kensuke because he's your friend. <laughs> Like, it's a really fab comic, especially if you're into D&D, because it takes a lot of old concepts and finds new, interesting ways to examine them, like the concept of mimics. Mm-hmm. Just, mm, okay slash chef's kiss emoji. Yeah. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> chef's kiss. Haha, <laughs> chef's kiss. Good segue into Pop Culture Corner, because the first thing I have listed is Dungeon Mashie. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, it's also in Full Metal Alchemist. Alphonse Elric could be considered living oh, armor. He's yeah. got a soul bound to a suit of armor. Yeah, Giver has some. Pokemon has some. In comics, there's Thor, Iron Man, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Conan the Barbarian, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's a comic in Mad about like a suit of armor. The princess was going to like bed her knight, only to find out that she had married an empty suit of armor or something like that. Is that a metaphor? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> There's Home and Beauty and the Beast, The Adventures of Mark Twain, Barbarella, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Excalibur, Lord of the Rings, Sinbad of the Seven Seas, Doctor Who, The Gargoyles, they show up there. Cool. Code Lyoko, Justice League, Danny Phantom, Scooby-Doo, The Smurfs, um, Three Hearts and Three Alliance by Paul Anderson, The Sapphire Rose by David Eddings, The Non-Existent Knight by Italo Calvino, which I haven't read now I want to because I really like Italo Calvino's work. Uh, in Invisible Cities, which is cool, and oh. you should check it out. It's weird and poetic. The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis is referenced. It's not really in there, but it's just referenced. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, The Tale of Despero uh, by Kate DiCamillo. Uh, and then just, like I said, tons of games. Brawlhalla, Endless Legend, Castlevania, because what doesn't Castlevania <laughs> have? Um, Dawn of War Two, Devil May Cry, Dragon oh Quest, God. Kingdom Hearts, Legend of Zelda, Phantom Hourglass, Fire Emblem, Resident Evil 4, RuneScape, Soul Calibur, Dragon Age, Mother 3, Luigi's Mansion, Yu-Gi-Oh! Just, that's only a few. Like, there's so much more. I skimmed these lists down. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some in the Mystery Skulls animation. There's uh, A Modest Destiny, which is a webcomic, Girl Genius webcomic, and the webcomic Tales of Questor. Uh, And that's just, like, a small fraction (laughs) of appearances in pop culture. Because, like I said, this is very, like, I I had trouble finding actual mythological stories stuff about it but it was it was essentially just everywhere in media which was pretty cool uh and fun to look into man it makes me really want to fill a castle with animated suits of armor (laughs) i'm into it they're good visually i just like they're very cool 
I do love the art you did for the episode. It makes me laugh. Or I was bullying a suit of armor. Yeah. <laughs> it's my armor now. It's very good. Oh, I wonder if that would be like a uh, Finn in Jake suit kind of deal. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Not fun for uh, the old external part. <laughs> also just weird. Weird bit. like that Iron Man story that you should all definitely <laughs> go and try and seek out. See if you interpret mm. it the same way I did when I was 15. <laughs> Good. Well, I mean, I'm always worried that we're not going to make it to an hour and then we do this. So <laughs> thanks for listening to me talk about bed knobs Woo! and broomsticks for a half an hour. I will cut that down a little bit. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Stone Houses. Uh, our next episode goes up Sunday, January 20th. One week. We continue that trend. It'll yeah. Be good. But before we get too far into outro, I do want to give the results of our apotropaic poll on Twitter. Oh. <laughs> There's still uh, a day and a half left, but uh, at this point, 101 people have responded, and 59% say it has a good mouthfeel, and 41, 41% say that it has a bad mouthfeel. You're feel. right. <laughs> Thank you for participating in that. In that, I realize that the poll. question is subjective, but also you're wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, reminders at the end of the episode that we are doing our best and trying out weekly episodes, which are doing pretty decent so far. Uh, weekly episodes for January and forward, if possible. So, woohoo! Good luck woo-hoo. to us. You can check us out at Stonehouses Cast on Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook.com forward slash Stonehouses Cast to get info about our show and episodes and ridiculous polls about the word apotropaic. Uh, Bernadette has a cool comic that you should check out. Yeah, uh, wishinthewildhunt.com. You can also find me at Bernadette Meek on Twitter. That's my name without an R. It's too long. <laughs> I'm at Bruder Caitlin, B R U D E R K A I T L I N. If you enjoyed what you heard today, uh, please consider sharing your show with a friend. Uh, if you could rate or review or subscribe on your podcast uh, hosting platform of site, it would really mean a lot to us, and it helps out the show with statistics and showing it to other people, <laughs> which which we appreciate. And it's kind of cool when we get them because then I read them and get really happy. Um, right now we're available on <laughs> Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Stitcher, iTunes, and CastBox. And this week's shout-outs are, there are so many of you because, oh my god, you guys were just so nice to us this week. Like, there, so many people went out of their way to promote us or recommend us to other people or just tweeted about us. And, oh my god, I was so emotional, you guys. It was extremely nice. I was so overwhelmed with just Stonehouse's positivity. So and I we hope really we used you. up that goodwill by talking about <laughs> all of this for an hour and a half <sighs> thanks so much for tuning in uh but shout outs to ella miranda matthew ike adrian gabriel turtz austin kb tibbs and philip specifically who was listening to our gargoyles episode and saw a gargoyle and sent us a picture of it and that was really really cool and i was thinking about that 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 might be mm, probably one of the only episodes we ever do where you could that could happen you know like <laughs> I some mean, of the topics we've done, I would probably be terrified if you just happened upon one. Uh, I was listening to your episode about the goat man, and I saw the goat <laughs> man. And then he <laughs> threw a tire at me. He threw a tire at me and threatened me with an axe. 
I hope you don't run into most of our episode topics while you're listening to episodes. But that was really cool that you sent a picture to us. Uh, It made me so happy. So thank you for that. Um, You too can post about us and tag us at Stonehouse's Cast or using hashtag Stonehouse's Cast so I can see it and cry and love you forever. And thank you here in this section. Um, (laughs) You can email us at stonehousescast at gmail.com. This has been Stonehouses, an amateur guide to fiction, fable, and folklore. I'm Caitlin Bruder. And I'm Laura Bernadette Meeker. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Traguna, my coidy. Traguna, my coidy.